Shalom, Mishpocha. Welcome to this week's Kadima Talk. As I want to share with you about charisma in 1 John 7, verse 27. It says, as for you, the messianic anointing you receive from the Father remains in you, so that you have no need for anyone to teach you. On the contrary, as his messianic anointing continues to teach you about all things, and it is true, not a counterfeit, so just as he taught you, remain united with him. Now, this is from the Complete Jewish Bible by Dr. David Stern. We use this or the Tree of Life Version Bible, two messianic Bibles that uh, are done within our community. They're very profound. And I was intrigued by Dr. Stern's use of this term, Messianic anointing. So I looked this passage up in other translations. The overwhelming usages was anointing, with a distant second use was Holy Spirit. So I looked up the Greek term for Messianic anointing, and here it is, chrisma, C-H-R-I-S-M-A. Here's the definition of chrisma. That believers have an anointing from the Holy One indicates that this anointing renders them holy, separating them to God. It's a special endowment. This passage teaches that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the all-efficient means of enabling believers to possess a knowledge of the truth. In the Septuagint, this word is used for the oil for anointing in the high priest. In Exodus 29, verse 7, then take the anointing oil and anoint, meshach, shmir, anoint, consecrate to be anointed, to rub with oil, root word of Mashiach, the anointed one. Then take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Christmas stands for the anointed one, Messiah, the noun for the person himself in Daniel 9.26. Then after the 62 weeks, Mashiach will be cut off and have nothing. The people of a prince yet to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, but his end will come with a flood and desolations are decreed until the war is over. Rabbi Dr. David Stern accurately captured the intent of the writer, John, who also wrote the Gospel of John. Yochan and John, who is, who is Jewish, was writing to the young Messianic communities and Messianic Jews almost 2,000 years ago. I incessantly share this. But as we read through this, we must understand that church and that understanding, uh, the entity that we know of today, was over 300 years in the future. There were no churches. There was no Sunday worship. This was a very profound Jewish movement, and it's speaking to early Messianic Jewish believers in Messianic synagogues, Messianic communities. First John was written in Ephesus around 95 to 110 AD by an aged, mature John, urging Messianic followers to guard against and reject false teachings and theologies while encouraging them in their trust and their faith. The letters of Yochanan and John reveal how God's word must always be the test of both teaching and behavior, emphasizing love, trust, and obedience in our lives and in our expression of worship. Like us today, John is speaking to Messianic congregations in the diaspora who are dealing with the same false theology issues we deal with today, just like us, Congregation Zion's sake. We're a Messianic congregation, but we're in the diaspora, which means we're not in Israel. John's letters were written around the same time uh, same approximate time frame as Acts 80 through 90 AD through a course of there's always a theologian wanting to argue the dates, but they're close. It's close enough for government work. Shaul or Paul himself was executed by Nero in June of AD 67 or 68. He was beheaded at the Circus Maximus. So placing this into a time frame, this allows us to see what was occurring in the kingdom at this time. Shaul Paul arrived back to Jerusalem in 57 AD 
where he was warmly greeted in Acts 21, starting at verse 17. In Yerushalayim, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Shaul and the rest of us went into Yachov to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, Paul described in detail each of the things God had done among the Gentiles through his efforts. On hearing it, verse 20, they praised God. But they also said to him, You see, brother, how many tens of thousands, murias, tens of thousands, an innumerable multitude, an unlimited number, a myriad, even an indefinite number. You see, brother, how many tens of thousands or even an unlimited myriad, an indefinite number of believers there are among the Judeans, and they are all zealots for the Torah. Paul, Shaul, returned to Jerusalem for the fifth and last time to give a report of what Adonai had done through him among the Gentiles and on his three journeys. Though impactful, it was a small beginning. Acts 10 and 11 record the house of the Gentile Roman army officer Cornelius in Caesarea in about 39 AD. Cornelius and his household were believers. Cornelius was in God's thoughts when they had become filled with the Ruach HaKodesh with the Holy Spirit. Peter was sent by God to both witness this profound event and to learn to understand that Yeshua and this outpouring of the Ruach upon Cornelius and his household was proof positive that this move, this paradigm shift in the kingdom of God was for both Jew and Gentile alike. Yes, it's to the Jew first, but also to the nations, to the Gentiles. But the seeds were small, as we just read in Acts 21. The first 50 to 70 years were predominantly a Jewish-based move. The Gentile side of things were just beginning, and the seed of this is in Acts chapters 10 and 11. By the time we move into AD 90 through 100, the Messianic congregations throughout the empire were growing at an exponential rate, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. So look at the timeline. Yeshua is crucified around 30 AD. 50 years later, 80 AD. 70 years later, 100 AD. And we know that from our last year that there's significance to these numbers the timeline is striking in its similarities. In our own modern history, the Messianic movement came about in a supernatural outpouring a move of God. And though Adonai has always retained a remnant, things begin to blossom after May 14, 1948, and exploded in June of 67. So we see this physical connection of when God is bringing restoration to the land and to people physically, it's always combined with a spiritual outpouring. So when Israel is restored in 1948 as a nation, we have the young Billy Grahams. We had this big tent revival starting, healing revivals. Same time in June of 67, now Jerusalem's restored into our hands. Now we see supernatural outpourings of charismatic, Pentecostal, spirit-filled moves of God, and it's a restoration bringing the kingdom back to its beginning. Now, like AD 100, things are about to go atomic. They did then as they are about now. And so we see these conditions that, remember, the Talmudim, after Yeshua was crucified, intense persecution arose among them. And we see Rome not giving favorable status to these Messianic Jews. In fact, we will see an invasion and the destruction of the temple in just a few years, in decades. And so there's parallel to this because as that was happening, we see a great revival and expansion of the kingdom. We live in such days today. We're in very horrible times. We're facing uh, oppression and persecution, but it's about to explode onto the international stage, and the enemy knows it. 
Back in 100 AD, Hasetan was infiltrating their ranks with false teachers, false theologies in order to divide, separate, and destroy the trust and love of these early believers, these early Talmudim. Hasetan pitted Jews against Gentiles, Gentiles against Jews, planting various heresies in these congregations. It's so striking how that's exactly what's happening today. There's nothing new under the sun. Hasetan has the same old strategies, the same old weapons. We have to be aware of what he's doing and how he's doing it and look back through history and recognize this is his pattern. So he pitted Jews against Gentiles, Gentiles against Jews, planting heresies in the congregation. John, a seasoned, wise, and experienced Tamid, disciple of Yeshua, saw what was happening and wrote to them to counter the enemy's attacks. John edified Yeshua's purpose in 1 John 2, which is beautifully summarized and outlined in the Tree of Life Bible. Yeshua atoned for our sins. He is our sacrifice. Loving God means obedience to him. Haters will stumble in the darkness. Fellowship with God conquers evil. The fleeting world opposes Adonai. Anointed people cling to the anointed one. Father and Son came as one. And finally, we are to live in the anointed one, Mashiach. So John reveals a hidden mystery here, the mystery of this messianic anointing of 1 John 2.27, which is this word, chrisma. Messianic anointing you receive from the Father remains in you, he said in 1 John 2.27. Pressing in for what the Lord prophetically has in store for us is part of the end-time messianic movement. It hinges upon the outpouring and infilling of the Ruach. Listen, the, the Ruach is similar to electricity. A lamp is useless unless it's plugged into the receptacle in the wall and receives electricity. The lamp doesn't work without the power. You and I were like that lamp. In fact, Yeshua refers to us as such in, in, in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. He says, you're a light for the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Likewise, when people light a lamp, they don't cover it with a bowl, but put it on a lampstand so that it shines for everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they may see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. If we are a lamp that's radiating the brilliancy, the light, the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven, then the fuel, the receptacle that we have to be tapped into is the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. To get to the next level of glory, we need to confront the reality of where we are and remove the veil that has been over the body for quite some time. We've lost our ability to invoke or release the supernatural upon our greater society because we're not working within or from the supernatural realm of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. There's a fortress mentality among too many believers that the kingdom of God is a fortress and we're safe behind the walls of that fortress. Meanwhile, the world is spiraling out of control. Evil abounds. What's good is, is now bad. What's bad is now good. And, uh, and that's okay because the body of believers, they're inside the fort. But we're not commanded to maintain a fort. We're commanded to charge. We're commanded to go out into the world. We need to leave the fortress and go out and move with signs and wonders to invade the natural with the supernatural and radiate our light, the light of Mashiach, into the darkness. The infilling of Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, operates within the believer, equipping them for service in the kingdom of God. 
Comprehension and use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is required because we are citizens of heaven, a supernatural spiritual world. Operating in the Ruach allows our lamp to be lit, energizing us to, to impact this world for the kingdom of God. The problem is that not every lamp, not every person is plugged in. Not every believer is tapping into the power source of the Spirit. They keep flicking the switch, but the lights aren't coming on because they're not plugged in. As Yeshua said in Matthew 22, verse 29, Yeshua answered them, the reason you go astray is that you're ignorant both of the Tanakh and of the power. And power here is that Greek word deutimus, which means strength, power, the ability, the power for performing miracles. This is self-evident in a majority of the body of Messiah unable to now walk in signs and wonders and see miracles happen. That word alone isn't enough. It must be coupled with the power. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of words, but of power. Here we have that, that same term, deutimus. The Messianic community is not one of platitudes, eloquence, lofty or noble thoughts and intentions. Paul, who wrote this to the Messianic congregations, seated in Corinth, understood the basic fundamental characteristic of God's kingdom. It's one of power. Paul underwent great adversity in his works throughout the empire. He constantly faced a barrage of criticism about his work, just like us today. There were even those who would travel to Corinth and speak against what he was doing or how he was doing it. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5, And neither the delivery nor the content of my message relied on compelling words of wisdom, but on a demonstration of the power of the Spirit, so that your trust might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul candidly shared that he wasn't eloquent, but what couldn't be denied was the power of God that was working through him. He demonstrated this power. Paul started numerous congregations across the Roman Empire. He healed the sick. He raised the dead through God's deutimous power, Yet he himself said he wasn't eloquent in speech or a gifted orator. Regardless of how he spoke, the words that came out of Paul carried power and authority that came from God through the Ruach. It could not be denied. How do we get this power? Well, in the second part of Yeshua's statement in Matthew 22, verse 29, he mentioned this deutimous power. The word of the deutimous power coupled together are the key to revival, the sovereign moves of God. Yeshua told us we would receive this in order to be his light unto the world. In Acts 1, verse 8, he says, But you receive power, deutimus, when the Ruach HaKodesh comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judah and Samaria and indeed to the ends of the earth. So here's the takeaway. Everyone has been called to receive the Holy Spirit and operate in the gifting of the Spirit. Any congregation where the Ruach is suppressed, you'll witness a dead body where there are no signs and wonders. 